G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. He is often going to lead you to do that which brings Him the most glory, and it's not always going to be painless. Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today we continue hearing what to do when the odds are against you. Pastor Jeff is reminding us to turn to God first when we're struggling and not to leave Him as a last resort. God will often strip us of everything we depend upon other than Himself. That's what He's doing with Gideon. That's what He's going to do with you. Why? Because when troubles come, you resort to God last. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we continue when the odds are against you. God will always lead us to do that which gives Him the most glory. Now stay with me. This beautiful story, it starts to evolve, starts to grow, because in verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Now we're getting the real picture, right? Now it's starting to become crystal clear. Why is God sifting the army? Because he wants to make sure at the end of the day when the victory comes, the only one who gets the glory is God. Now you think about it. Four to one odds, you could say, you know, it was a, it was a, the odds were against us, but we fought hard and won. 13 to one odds, you know, it was very difficult, but we did it. But if it's 135,000 to 300, 450 to one odds, the only way to be victorious is God. That's why when you're in the middle of a difficult situation and you feel weak, that's when you're at your strongest. Do you know why? Because that's when God moves in and gives you his power. The weaker you feel, the stronger God is. And the weaker you feel when you experience the victory, you know that God gets the glory. You know, the only way you can describe what happened is because God moved in and did a miracle. God gets the glory. You know it. He knows it. And everybody around you, as they watch how you responded to this difficulty, they know it. Now, folks, I've seen this in churches and people. Let's do churches first. This church right here. There was a group of people that met about, I don't know, five miles from here. But they were convinced, a lot smaller group than is here at this church now, they were convinced that this property was given to them by God. And this is where God wanted them to do ministry. So you know what they did? They did the numbers, put them on paper. When they did it, they said, this is impossible. And that proved to them that it was from God because they did it and look what God provided. And you're enjoying the faith of a small committed core in the power and faithfulness of God. But I've also seen it in individuals. I want you to stay with me here. You've heard me talk about my experience in Zimbabwe of losing our first child. You've heard me talk about the faith of my wife. I want to tell you something. And men, listen very carefully. There's an indirect lesson in this. You know, when we lost our first child, I was newly married. We hadn't been married that long. Obviously, at least nine months. But we hadn't been married. I was new at the marriage ceremony and the marriage relationship. 
And so I, I was learning how to be a husband, much less a father. And when we lost our child in that accident, I did not know how to respond to my wife because I was raised in a home where if there's something really, really difficult happening, everybody just ignores it. Sound familiar? And so when this happened, I did not know how to comfort my wife. I didn't have the foggiest idea because my parents hadn't taught me that. And I just prayed, God, you know, what's going, you know, God, I don't know what to do. What, what do I say to her? And you know, the, the thing that my wife needed most of all was what? Her husband to hug her and assure her that it's okay, that she is loved and that God is on the throne. And then I saw my wife stand up before those African Shona women who in their culture believe that if you lose a child, it's because God curses you and has turned his back on you. And I saw my wife stand up in front of those women and talk about that although she had lost her first child, that God's love was deep still, that God's love for her would never change, that it is unending, that she could never be separated from that love. And I saw in that moment how those African women's lives changed when they saw somebody stand up with that kind of courage and say, God has not cursed me, God loves me, and will bring this and use it for his purposes. A lot of times you gotta wait a long time before you see how God uses a tragic event. I only had to wait about a week. And I saw the faith of those women grow. It started a revival among the women of our church. It permeated our block, our community, our city as the lives of more and more women began to be changed as they knew this one woman who had experienced a tragedy and yet felt the love of God more deeply than she ever had before. God will often lead you to do that which gives him the most glory. When my wife stood up there, she knew it, I knew it, and everybody around her knew that the only way she'd be able to do that in such a painful tragedy is if God was bringing the victory and was opening her eyes and giving her a spiritual awareness that she had never before had. And I want to tell you, talk to my wife today, she will tell you that that was painful and it hurt, but she knows that God took that and used it and glorified himself as the countenance and faith of so many women was lifted up. I want to tell you, God will do the same thing in your life. He is often going to lead you to do that which brings him the most glory, and it's not always going to be painless. Four, God will usually strip us of everything we depend upon other than himself. Now, the story gets intensifying here. Listen, he will strip us of everything we depend upon other than himself. Gideon had 32,000 men. God said too many, 10,000 too many, 300, a helpless little bunch, untrained and ill-equipped. Now, here comes the second board meeting. Gideon goes into God, and now I think he's saying, okay, I got 300 men, that is bad. I'll agree it's 450 to one odds, but I know what's gonna happen now. In the second board meeting, God is gonna come into the board meeting, he's gonna say, release the secret weapon. <laughs> Got to be a secret weapon here somewhere. Got to be something that's powerful, and I'm ready to get it. But he goes in with his board meeting with God, and if you read through chapter 7, God doesn't mention anything about, as he says, Gideon, here is your arsenal. He doesn't say anything about swords, bows, and arrows, javelins, or spears. He gives him a list of four weapons. Number one, a trumpet. Well, I could hit him over the head with that, I guess. <laughs> Clay jars. Well, I could throw that at him. Torches. Well, I could burn them a little bit. And your voice. Now, unless there were some really bad singers in Israel, I'm not sure how that's going to defeat the Midianites. 
God will often strip us of everything we depend upon other than himself. That's what he's doing with Gideon. That's what he's going to do with you. Why? Because when troubles come, you resort to God last. First, you go to your own personal defenses. And so God spends a lifetime stripping those away from you. When you get in trouble and you're down and depressed, you don't go to God because you don't trust him. You go to some addiction. It might be alcohol, so you drink more. It might be pornography, so you look more. It might be some drug addiction. It might be some other addiction. It could even be a sport. It could be golf, heaven forbid. It may give you comfort. It could be baseball, football. It could be football season. It could be a relationship that is illicit. It's not one that you should be involved in. It could be money. You could try to make more and more money. It could be, now ladies, I brought golf in, so you know I got to bring this in. You could be a comfort shopper. You could spend money and spend more money because you feel better. It allows you to tune out what's really at stake and what's happening. And for some people, let's be honest, it's even food. When you feel bad, you go eat. It becomes an addiction to you because it makes you feel better. And you know what God's going to do for most of your life? Because he's trying to build your faith in his faithfulness, he's going to spend a lifetime of stripping that away. And the tighter you hold on, the tighter he's going to pull. Because you think those things are going to give you what you need and God wants you to run to him so that he can build your faith in his faithfulness. Folks, when I was in Zimbabwe, now listen to this. First time I went over there, you know, everything over there is 220. So you have to have a transformer to convert 220 volts to 110. But I didn't know that. No one told me. So I'm getting out of the shower. I'm dripping wet with a towel. And I got a hairdryer from America in my hands. And I'm looking for a place to plug this thing in, but none of the sockets fit. And then I see this little machine on the floor. I didn't know what it was, but I know it matched. So I go over with all the water dripping wet with a towel, and I plug it in, and my hand hits the socket. When it does... I was jolted by 220 volts. Has that ever happened to you? Let me tell you what that's like. You ever seen the movie Back to the Future when Michael J. Fox takes his hand and hits the first note on the guitar and the speakers burst and he's thrown back? That's what happened to me. 6'4", 187 pounds at that time and I was thrown out onto the floor. I want to tell you from now on when I see a transformer, I'm very careful in how I use it. Very careful. Here's the deal. You keep going over to these things that you're depending on and they keep shocking you. They keep knocking you back. God's trying to tell you this is never going to work. It wasn't designed to work this way. I want you to come to me and put your faith and trust in me alone. Young people, listen to me again. God releases. God releases the power of the Holy Spirit through you and in you to the degree that you are totally, hopelessly, helplessly devoted and committed to him. Let me say it again. God releases the power of the Holy Spirit through us and in us to the degree that we are totally, helplessly, and completely dependent upon him. If you're not dependent upon God, God doesn't give you that source of power. If you are dependent upon God, and the more you're dependent upon God, God is willing to release his divine energy and power into your life to give you the power you need to overcome the giants in your life. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we're hearing how God uses our struggles to make us stronger in Him. Let's continue when the odds are against you. Now look at how God is loving this man. Gideon, I want you to grab your servant, Purah. I want you to go down next to the enemy camp. You know where that spring of hair, I want you to go even further. I want you to go right beside the camp. And God led him. Now remember, there's 135,000 warriors, so there are going to be thousands of tents. He leads him to a specific tent, to a specific dreamer, a specific interpretation of the dream, 
to give him a specific message directly from God through somebody else. Why didn't God just tell him? You ever think about that? No, say, God, I'm going to use somebody else. I want you to go down, get your servant Pura. They go down to this tent. You, talk, you think the Bible's not humorous? Gideon goes down there with Pura, and he's listening up to this tent, right on the enemy camp. And somebody in the tent says, man, tells his friend, you're not going to believe this. Pal, I had a crazy dream. What'd you dream? I dreamed that a loaf of barley bread came crashing down and hit this tent and threw it up in the air, and the tent came crashing down. What does that mean? Now, you talk about a funny dream. A big, mean loaf of barley bread came down the mountain and hit the tent, struck the tent, and it fell upside down. Now, that's funny, but what's more funny is the interpretation because his friend doesn't even pause. Wow, I know what that means. It means this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. <laughs> what? <laughs> Now, you, I dare you, look in your Bible. I kept looking for commentators to tell me why that means that. They just skip right over it. That's right. Nobody wants to deal with it. I think there's a reason. Because we don't know. It doesn't matter. God led them to a specific tent, a specific dream, and a specific interpretation. It doesn't have to make sense. The only thing that matters is that Gideon heard what it meant. And he heard that. The Bible says that he was so encouraged because God's building his faith and his faithfulness. He started jumping up and down. He and Pura got out the guitars and drums and everything and started having a worship service right there next to the tent. Now, one part of you can say that's foolish. They might hear him, but Gideon's faith has been built. He doesn't care who hears him now because he's already convinced he's going to win in the end. You know, it might've been the first secular song in a worship service. Hit me with your best shot. I don't know, but he's confident now. He's faithful. He knows it's all good. Man, I love that about God. Haven't you ever had a time in your life when you needed encouragement? You know, sometimes just when you think it's all gone to custard and it's all bad, God will send one person into your life who will love you unconditionally and will encourage you when you grow faint-hearted. I love it. I love it. God is always working on the other side of the camp. Let me summarize and end with the story. Here's what happens. God says, get in, time to fight. Go out, take the clay jars, take the torches, take the trumpets. I want you to surround the camp of Midianites, thousands of them, with the 300 men, so you're gonna have to space yourself. Right at the watch, when it's changing, and everybody's got sleep in their eye, trying to wake up and say, oh, it's our turn to watch. I want you to blow the trumpets. I want you to raise the torch. I want you to smash the clay jars. And I want you to say, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, if I was Gideon, I'd say, what's that going to do? And I think God would say nothing unless I wanted to. Because you know what happened, don't you? You see... Gideon didn't know that God had been working on the other side of the camp the whole time. Because when somebody told that dream, God can use gossip for his purposes too, you know. And that dream started spreading throughout the camp. Next thing you know, everybody's aware. Man, somebody had a dream about Gideon. You know how dreams grow? But it was a huge army. Forget the loaf of bread. I had a dream, a huge army numbering thousands and thousands. And the name of Gideon was the leader. He was on a big chariot, a white horse coming out of the sky. You know how it all grows? So that by the time... They smashed those pots, they raised the torches, they blew the trumpet, and what was awesome was the name of Gideon piercing that darkness. The Bible says that the Midianites thought that everything that moved was an Israelite, and they turned on each other and killed each other. No Israelite had to fight because the battle belonged to God. And if Gideon would have disobeyed God at any one point, he would not have experienced the victory. But now his faith has been built. 
and God had been working on the other side of the camp. You got somebody you need to forgive, God's working on the other side of the camp. You're worried about your finances, God is working on the other side of the camp. And I know of no better way to end this message than to remind you of what I told you. I think it was the first time I stood on that platform. This is new. <laughs> I was in Zimbabwe. Our church stopped growing. Little boy comes to me and says, I'll tell you why the church isn't growing, Pastor Jeff. Oh, this is all I need. Some little kid telling me why the church. I'll tell you why. Why? Because Mr. Mashonga has not become a believer. Who's Mr. Mashonga? Mr. Mashonga was the chief. Now, even though my church was in the city and among well-educated English-speaking Shona people, Mr. Mashonga, when he lived in the rural areas, was the chief of his tribe. And just because he moved into the city doesn't mean that stopped. And so Mr. Mashonga, who lived right across the street from the church, his son Virus and his daughter, little daughter Shingi, cute little girl, came every time the doors were open. Mr. Mashonga never came. So this little boy said, until Mr. Mashonga becomes a believer, Pastor Father Jeff, he called me. Until Mr. Mashonga becomes a believer, none of the other Shona people, none of the other Africans are going to come to Christ. Oh, man. I was 23 years old, and I got a great idea. Oh, man, this is great. I'm glad. Then we're going to pray for 30 straight days. We're all going to get down on our knees. We're going to pray, God, please, please bring Mr. Mashonga to yourself. Please, please orchestrate and fashion together events in his life that you would bring him to Christ. And God, I know it's what you want. That's what you do when you want God to move the way you want him to do. You start quoting God's scripture because he forgot the Bible. You say, God, please, you said it's not your will that anyone should perish. So here's one that's perishing. So God, it must be your will. Do what you got to do to bring him into salvation. And then we'll set the city on fire with the gospel. Hallelujah. I was doing all that stuff. You know, the positive confession. We claim this in Jesus' name. We were doing it all. 30 days playing on, praying on a parquet floor there in that old farmhouse. People kept coming. We kept praying. We said, we know you're going to move. We were so positive. 30 days ended. Saturday morning, I got a knock at the gate. It was little Patrick, who was Virus's, Mr. Mashonga's son, 14-year-old son, best friend. Patrick said, Jeff, you better come quickly. Virus is dead. What did what, you say? And he explained to me on the way to the hospital that Virus had been tackled in a rugby game and there was a rock on the field no one had noticed and he hit his head and now he's in the hospital in ICU and he's dying. Now, what was my first reaction? God, you're just not very good. <laughs> God, no, you, no, you, 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 you don't understand. We prayed for 30 days. We've asked you to move and orchestrate it. God, what's going on here? You're about to blow this, God. But then when I got to the hospital and I walked by the emergency room, Going to the ICU unit, Mr. Mashonga was there with all his family. And they were weeping and wailing as you do in the Shona culture. Mr. Mashonga looked at me, did not say a word, but let me, you, let me interpret accurately the glance. Okay, big fella, let's see how powerful your God is that you've been talking about. Now that's some serious pressure, don't you think? Then I go into the ICU unit. I talked to the nurse. How does it look? Very bad, she says. And I grabbed his hand and I started talking to God. 23 years old, so cut me some slack. God, God, what are you doing? You're, <laughs> you're going to ruin everything. <laughs> and then as I'm praying there, it dawned on me. Oh, God, if you can heal him, especially while I'm in here, if you can heal him, and they can make a connection between you and me, then they'll believe in my God. 
I got it. This whole thing, God, you've allowed this because I don't believe God sends this. I, God, God, you've allowed this so that I could pray and he would be healed. It's going to be good. And I'm excited. Now I'm praying. My face is red. The nurse came out. You okay, Jeff? I said, no, I'm just praying. I'm just praying. God, yeah, this is it. And then about 3 a.m. in the morning, 3 a.m., Varus died. Now that's not how you thought the story was going to end, is it? And now as the pastor, it is my responsibility to tell the family he's dead. I go over to the waiting room. Mr. Michonne goes at the front with the whole family. I say, Mr. Michonne, I'm sorry to tell you this, but Virus has died. He's passed away. Weeping in the welling begins. Mr. Michonne looks at me, but this time I cannot read him to save my life. He just a blank stare. Now, that was Saturday. I got to preach the next morning. Actually, it's morning already. And I was young. And again, I was taught indirectly that the way you deal with difficulties is to ignore them and hope they go away. Can I just say something to the husbands in the room? They never go away. They just build. And if that's the way you run your family, that you just ignore it, or you try to tell yourself it's not happening, you're destroying your family. Be the man, stand up and talk and listen. Don't get angry. Listen to what your kids have to say. Do not get defensive. Hear them out and deal with it. Well, I only knew one way to deal with this. So I got up the next day to preach. And I had all these people from the community come to hear what I was going to say about this tragedy. And I did not even address it. Fifteen minutes into my sermon, Mr. Mashonga, who had never been into the church before, walks in the back door and he starts walking up. And I notice he's not stopping. And he keeps walking. And he walks right onto the stage. And he taps me on the shoulder. And I'm thinking of all the gold in the middle of my sermon. Bad one, although it's still my sermon. And he taps me on the shoulder. And everybody, I mean, it's a packed house. They're looking. And he says, Jeff, and notice how he phrases it. I wonder if I could have a word with my people. Ah. I might have been young and dumb, but I knew better than to say no. He's the chief. I'm the visitor. I backed out in my seat and I put my head in my hands and I literally, I remember it like it was yesterday. I started thinking, okay, how long will it take me to get out of here? <laughs> how long will it take to pack my bags, pack all my things, go back to America because my ministry's over? <laughs> and Mr. Mashonga stood in and he started to talk and I just got worse. He said, as you know, I lost my son, Virus. My treasure is gone. This man back here says that God is powerful and loving and can do all things. Mr. Michaud said, I don't know about any of that. But here's what I do know. When my son Vera started coming to this place, he became a better son, a better person, a better student, and a better man. And I was just wondering, whatever it is you people gave to him, could you give that to me too? And the weeping and the wailing and the standing and the cheering. And Mr. Mashonga gave his life to Christ. Within 12 months became the chairman of the board of elders. And that little girl, Shingi, grew up to be a nice young woman who married Denver Chizanga the man I trained to take my place, and now they're there together 
changing all of Zimbabwe one village at a time. You know why that changed me? Because at no point did God do what I thought he should have done. Every time in my book, he kept making one mistake after the next, and it was going to end in disaster. And it ended in life. <laughs> you know why? Because God is always working on the other side of the camp. And no matter how bleak it looks to you, it'll all come together in the right time. In the stillness, he's still moving. In the quietness, he's still speaking. In the chaos, he is still here. He's never left you. He's been there the whole time. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. That's the end of What to Do When the Odds Are Against You. Next time we're continuing in our help series and Pastor Jeff is sharing what to do when we experience financial distress. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.